What is going on, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome back to the High Bar Podcast. This is episode number 13. Today, I'm not accompanied by anybody. It is just me, Sean Solo. And going forward, we're going to be having episodes with members of the team, primarily myself and Chance. But we'll get Jaron, Michael, Eric, Aiden on here. We'll have some guests. But in between those episodes, I'll just be getting on here and giving you guys some of my thoughts, some ramblings, answering some questions that you guys have for me that maybe extend beyond the general programming, coaching, training type questions, things that maybe reach a broader audience or reflections of my personal life, or just my thoughts about this field in general. And today's topic is one that hits on the ladder of what it means to me to be a coach and how to be a successful coach and work with lifters for the long term. You know, I get asked this question a lot in terms of what do I have to do to become a good coach? What resources can I look toward? Um, and I think most people ask that in the very technical sense, the very objective sense, meaning what can I look toward to learn more about programming, tapering, deloading, you know, how do I determine the right frequency? All good questions, you know, all things that we need to learn in order to become a good coach. And there are a lot of fundamentals out there that you can read, such as the Muscle and Strength Pyramid by Eric Helms. You can look up some of Schoenfeld's research, uh, Zordos' stuff, principles of strength training. Um, there's, there's a lot of information at your disposal. Even some good fundamentals can be drawn from some juggernaut stuff. The great thing is a lot of coaches out there have put out tons of informative content on YouTube. You can look at Steve DeNovi's information, Marcellus Williams, the Swole Fesser, David Wilson, Joey Flex. I could keep naming Matt Cronin, Brad Cooliard. There are tons of people who I consider to be great resources in the world of powerlifting coaching. And the fundamentals need to be learned. Those are non-negotiables. And I think that a lot of information that makes people great coaches is learned through good mentorship and experience. You know, one of the things that I've been talking about very recently with coaches is that if you wanted to take someone to a national or world caliber level, there's really no book out there that could take you there. And for this reason, uh, myself and a few other coaches are going to be working on a platform that seeks to bridge this educational gap between what is available in research, what is available in literature, what is available just on YouTube and, you know, online forums or content. And I'm really excited for this. This is going to be a project that we start in the new year. And I think that for those of you who are interested in coaching or just even want to, you know, vamp up your own lifting capabilities and understanding, this platform will be a game changer. I truly believe it's going to be a revolutionary platform in the world of powerlifting, and I'm really looking forward to it. With that plug, I kind of want to pivot here because I mentioned that people are always asking, you know, what can I do to be a good coach? And all of this technical stuff is incredibly important, but I think the thing that gets overlooked is that where you learn to be a good coach does not really come from a lot of this technical, these technical outlets. Um, there are a lot of interpersonal things that I think people do not fully grasp or understand. And the lessons are to be had in completely different environments from a textbook or sitting in your room watching a YouTube video or going to a seminar. What I am talking about today is a reflection on how we've commodified the coach-client relationship or how transactional it can be viewed at times. And just how transactional people, especially in today's day and age, view relationships with other people. You know, 
thinking along the lines of what does this person do for me? How can I input X to get Y out of this person? What value does this person provide? What intrinsic value do I have over another person and kind of weighing yourself in, in relation to the other person with whom you're in whatever type of relationship? And I think the thing that I want to really harp on in this discussion is that you need to prioritize your relationships with your lifters above all. I think there's a fine line where, you know, there are things that lifters might do when they're too comfortable with a coach, such that it becomes inappropriate or unprofessional or rude. And I think that just as in any relationship, you establish boundaries. Obviously, the nature of a coach-client relationship is a bit more professional than the relationship of a friend or of a significant other. But I think that there needs to be a secondary level of investment in your lifters and similarly a secondary level of investment that your lifters have in you outside of what you put on a spreadsheet. And where do you learn this? Well, to give you guys background, I mean, I personally have recently rediscovered religion, specifically Christianity. And I was an atheist almost my entire life, certainly my entire adult life up until this point. I did not believe in a God from pretty much ages 10 all the way up until the past year and a half, two years. And I was fortunate enough to learn a lot of the interpersonal skills that I have through mentors, coaches, being part of teams and different communities, uh, namely baseball being one of them for me, having great teachers who really took the time to build relationships with the students. I went to a private school that was very uh, small classroom sizes. So you had like an intimate relationship with the people who taught you. And that is a, a parallel I can draw between what I think yields the best success in the world of coaching as well. So I was fortunate enough to have that experience with teachers, mentors, coaches, teammates, but not everyone gets that opportunity. And going back to what I was saying before, you know, there are boundaries to be set just as in any relationship, relationships with friends, relationships with relatives, relationships with significant others. So I'm not saying not to set those, right? But that secondary level of investment is so important for a multitude of reasons. One of the first being that it gets you through the inevitable hard times in working with a coach or athlete. Your powerlifting career is certainly not going to be all PRs, all progress. You'll plateau, you'll get injured, you'll even have things outside of the gym that are going to negatively impact your momentum, your ability to perform. And it's in those moments that having that deeper connection to a coach really, that deeper connection just pushes you through, keeps you more resilient, having that faith in your coach and your coach having faith in you, I think makes it a lot easier to see the long game, to view the relationship less selfishly to maybe zoom out and see a larger scope, bigger picture. You know, I think of, I think of some examples here. You know, I think of my experience with a lifter I coach who some of you may be familiar with. His name's Blake Barrett. Uh, Blake is probably the most competitive lifter that I've coached for over five years at this point. And I still do have lifters who I've worked with for four plus years, which I think is something that coaches should seek to have, not just for the sake of gathering data and, you know, building more predictable training outcomes, but because it's a reflection of your ability to truly have someone buy in. And it's a testament to what you inspire in an athlete outside of what's written on a page, because as I said, your career will not be progress exclusively. 
Now, the reason I bring up Blake is that when I started working with Blake, I didn't know him from a hole in the wall. He was from Canada. I believe he was my first Canadian lifter. I think all my lifters up to that point had been domestic. And we did not have any particular relationship prior to beginning to work with him. And it didn't start off as immediately being close friends or best friends, right? But what begins to unfold is, is essentially the groundwork for this relationship and amazing lifting career that he's had thus far, which is, first of all, I think committing to lifters that you can see yourself being a friend to, right? And, and in the beginning of your coaching career, you might not be able to be that selective, right? Where when you make it to this point where I'm at in my coaching career, for example, I pretty much handpick lifters. I don't have a wait list. I run near or at capacity at all times of the year, which I'm very blessed and fortunate to be in this position. So at this point, I can choose to work with lifters, not only who are very successful and have tons of lifting potential, but those with whom I really get along. Now, in the beginning of working with someone, you might not immediately feel that chemistry, which certainly makes things harder, but it doesn't excuse the absence of some sort of secondary relationship with a lifter. I think that you have to actively choose to get to know the lifter, what their motivations are, what their fears are, what they look forward to, what seems to stifle them at times, what their life consists of outside of the gym. Painting this entire picture of a human, I think is one of the most important things that you can do as a coach. Because as I began to build a friendship with Blake, I found myself involuntarily becoming more invested in his lifting outside of the maybe admittedly egotistical, because I think all coaches can agree that while you are providing a service, which you might say is a more neutral um, setup, right? You're, you're exchanging things in what you deem to be an equal exchange. So there's neutrality there. There still is this egotistical level of I'm the man and I'm going to figure out how to get this lifter to progress because it feels good and makes you feel superior to maybe other coaches or makes you just feel like you have some sort of secret sauce um, and coaching potential that got this lifter to where they are. And you'd like to believe that I'm doing the best job that any coach could with this lifter, right? So there's this neutral side of it. There's this selfish side of it. But I think the selfless one is the choice that I've mentioned only a few minutes ago, which is choosing to learn the human with whom you're working and choosing to become invested and interested in them outside of your own interest and desire to improve their training outcome, their performances. You have to do it for them. And the reason that this is so important is that when you choose, and this is kind of getting a bit more biblical, which for those of you who maybe aren't religious, you know, I'd, I'd invite you to just kind of stick with me for a bit, is that when you choose to love someone, you presently come to love them. And what this basically means is that when you, when you make the conscious decision to treat someone in a certain way, it is far more likely that you'll come to want to treat a person in a certain way. So what I'm getting to is that when you really make this conscious decision to learn your lifter, to love your lifter, to support your lifter, you will find yourself in a more clear headspace when you're making coaching decisions. You'll find yourself more eager to support them. You'll find yourself just a better coach in a more mentorship sense when working with this lifter than if you were just detached dispassionate, or maybe just viewing this as a transaction of financials for a program on a sheet and technical feedback. And the lifters take notice of this. You know, Blake has had a career of multiple injuries and has had many meets that have been disappointing. 
Um, he had a pretty bad knee injury a few years back. It pretty much kept him out of almost a year of really being able to compete at his best capabilities. He also had a groin injury that was grade two months of rehab months of not really being able to squat or deadlift to any meaningful capacity. And the reason I bring this up is that I believe if I didn't have the relationship with Blake that I have, that he would have left or he would have quit or he would have wanted to take time off. And I'm not saying this as any uh, undermining of Blake's resilience. Blake has been incredibly resilient, incredibly, incredibly resilient. I have a ton of admiration for the way he's carried himself as a lifter, for the way that he has persevered through hardship in this sport. So I don't mean to say that he would have done all of these things, but I'm saying that he may and probably would have done at least one, namely the one I'm looking at is the first one that doesn't question his character or fortitude, which is no longer choosing to work with me. And maybe it isn't at the exchange of another coach, meaning that it wouldn't necessarily mean that he'd leave for another coach because assumedly if you're not able to lift, there's nothing you can really do with another coach. But perhaps he would have decided, well, hey man, I know that we've had a great run, but I just need some time away from working with you while I try to navigate this injury because we had referred him to a PT who was helping him with these things. But I think that because of our relationship, that faith that I had his best interest at heart, that I'd be there to see things through to the other side, kept him on the team, kept him continuing to trust the things that I was saying. And in turn, with trusting everything that your coach is saying and truly believing that someone else outside of yourself believes in your ability to get better, right? Because within yourself, you can believe in yourself, but you have the doubts that flood your mind. You have the uncertainty. You're weighing different options. You're the one who constantly oscillates back and forth between a smaller time scale and a larger time scale. But someone who you view as an outside observer or source of support, if you truly believe that they believe you, you know, believe in you, you know that it's unconditional. And I'm thankful for these types of relationships because they allow you to make it through anything with your lifters. And that's what I believe the vast majority of athletes want in their coach. The vast majority of athletes, even if you are an incredibly successful coach, let's think about it this way. If you are the best of the best coach, you would probably have a higher proportion of elite high caliber lifters on your roster than someone who weren't. But even then, amongst those elite high caliber lifters, there still is only going to be a percentage who would trade you in for a robot that pumped out the best possible spreadsheet, right? For example, I think of someone like me or someone like Chance, who are the extreme side of things where I'm going to say this as no knock to Steve. Steve, I absolutely love you. I adore you. I am thankful and grateful for the relationship that we have. But if there were a robot that could spit out a program that was going to yield more progress for me, I'd probably leave you for that robot. And I'm sure Chance would take that same opportunity. But amongst the elite level lifters that you have on your roster, and especially amongst the entirety of your roster, the vast majority would not do that. They're looking for something more. They're looking to buy in and feel supported by someone who will have the answers. And the answers are not always, you have a four by five today. These are the accessories that I think are going to bring up your squat. The answers are, do you think that I'm going to be better by this time? Do you think that I can really push through this through? this injury? Do you believe that I can be the best? Do you think that I should keep going? They want 
the confirmation, the reassurance, the support that their own belief in themselves is warranted or justified because their doubts sometimes tell them otherwise. And I think this is a missing piece for a lot of coaches and people out there, namely because it's so difficult to get to this point with people. Um, I'll give you guys some insight as to my own predisposition. I've had to get yelled at to lock my doors in my apartment when I'm not home, not leave my laptop in my college dorm lounge when I go to the gym. I'm a very trusting person. And this was something long before religion. I've always believed in the potential of people. I've always believed that everyone's default is honesty. And I think we all know that that's not the case. As much as we would like to believe it to be true, we know that it's not the case. And with that, I'm very open to giving the love, the support, the respect in relationships all the time. Significant others, friends, athletes. I'm very open to giving myself in that fashion. And there are a lot of people out there who are not. Either they haven't had the experience themselves, meaning that maybe they weren't fortunate enough to have mentors that instilled that kind of behavior in them, or friendships or teams that gave them a direct reference for what that is. Or unfortunately, perhaps they're in a situation where they've been hurt. And I've been hurt. But there are people who have been hurt, and it makes them retreat or put up barriers, close off, essentially feel, I don't want to hurt this way. I don't want to give this level of respect or passion and be as vulnerable to someone if I am going to have that effort be disrespected or unappreciated or abused etc. There are a lot of people who experience that. And it's no judgment on them. I think that there's a, there's a logical argument to support that, right? But at the same time, we're dealing with human beings. And I think that there needs to be a more spiritual, more, and if you want to be religious, more Christ-like outlook on this, which is to be merciful, to be graceful. And especially in the case of not letting past experiences dictate future ones, which essentially is saying to, you know, open up your your heart, right, to people who come along that you, you feel are, are, are willing to receive it, right? So I think that in my coaching experience, I've certainly had athletes that I've worked with who I maybe don't feel as strong of a connection to in a friendly way as I do some other athletes. And again, that's not an excuse, right? So the, the, the conundrum is perhaps that other coaches, right? You might be listening to this as a coach and you might say to yourself, well, yeah, Sean, I absolutely do experience that, right? I... I get along really well with this athlete, but this one, it's just, it feels just more formal, more dry. And, and, you know, I, I just don't have that same, same chemistry, same compatibility, let's say with this lifter. Right. But I invite you not to falsely interpret that, right. Because the false interpretation of this is, well, I don't have this compatibility with this athlete outside of our coach client compatibility, meaning that I'm, I'm creating a plan that yields progress. They're fulfilling their duties. Therefore they are just not going to get that from me because if we view this in a more relationship type sense, or even a marriage type sense, right? Because what is, what is marriage, right? It's this contract of commitment. And when you agree to work with a lifter, you are, maybe some coaches don't have contracts, but you are signing a contract of commitment to a lifter. And I think that when you 
are contractually obligated to something, just as in marriage, we use the word commitment. And commitment is not involuntary. Commitment is a choice. So the way that I'd implore everyone to interpret this is that maybe I don't have this level of chemistry, compatibility, whatever for a lifter, but I need to choose to treat them as if I do anyway. Because if I treat them as I do, I will have a newer secondary level of investment in their training. And hopefully over time, I will develop a better relationship and maybe even a strong relationship with that lifter. Because I don't think, and I, and I truly mean this, I think there's a, there's a big difference between powerlifting and other sports. It is that, and, and part of it comes from the fact that it's an individual sport, is that you cannot be cold, distant, or passion or dispassionate and be a good coach with a lifter. It cannot be a purely transactional relationship. And we see it in the literature with real sports. <laughs> I say real sports, but just organized sports, professional sports, where the coaching style that is most successful differs depending on whether it's a team or individual sport, where the more authoritative coaching style succeeds in team settings because everyone feels like they're a part of something bigger, right? They are putting their own feelings of, of selfishness or identity at the side or on the back burner for the sake of the unit, for the sake of the collective, right? So being issued duties in perhaps an authoritative or cold or aggressive sometimes way, even, it's more received or better received because the outlook is purely selfless, right? I think of baseball where you fail a lot. There are nine players on a field. And for those of you who have played and for those of you who haven't, I'll, I'll say this either as a reminder or as a piece of insight. At the end of games that I've lost, right? Personally, strike out to end the game, ground out to end the game, whatever it might be, you make an error that brings in the winning run. It's very rare that at the end of that game, your coach is blaming it all on you. And that's not to spare you any sort of shame. You should feel and sit with your mistakes. And, I, and my coaches growing up, let me tell you, they were not shy to make you feel like shit. But it wasn't to spare your feelings. It was to make the point that there were multiple errors throughout the game. There were multiple opportunities to succeed. There were multiple opportunities to not be put into the position that I was put into at the end of a game such that maybe we could have won, right? Maybe if X person had done A, B, and C, we wouldn't be in this position, right? There's always diffusion of blame to another person. So rather than viewing it as this is all your fault, rather it is the collective that needs to be better, right? So that dynamic is a bit different from the individual sport one, where the identity, the sense of self-worth, the selfishness, the ego is in the forefront because it's you, it's your sport. The numbers are dry. It's objective. It's how much can I lift or not lift? Did I fail or did I succeed? And every single miss or make is a reflection of your capability on the day. It counts directly toward your performance and there's no one else to point to, but you, right? And while we could talk about the outlook, mental outlook on self-worth and competing in a sport, I think that's a, maybe a conversation for a different podcast, but the point is that you're going to be dealing with lifters of all different levels of self-awareness, selflessness, uh, grace, patience, et cetera, right? You're going to be working with so many different archetypes where what we see in individual sports is that this more democratic style of coaching on average succeeds. Now, there's always going to be exceptions, right? And I think that's why learning your athlete is so important. So if I think of coaches 
in professional sports who have had tons of success. I think of someone like Bill Belichick. I think of someone like Phil Jackson. And the reason I bring these two up is we know Bill Belichick to never smile. For those of you listening who don't know, Bill Belichick is the head coach of the New England Patriots. We know him to be very cold, very distant, win at all costs. It's just, this is the game. You got to do the game right. And he's been very successful in that team setting. I bring up Phil Jackson because if you have watched The Last Dance or are just a fan of basketball, I was not a big enough fan of basketball to have known this prior to watching The Last Dance. But his relationship with Dennis Rodman was an interesting one. If you didn't watch, Dennis Rodman was a wild card. He was a loose cannon. He would go out and party during the playoffs. He would disappear, miss practices. He was not all there mentally, emotionally, spiritually. And I think most coaches, when dealing with a disobedient athlete of this magnitude, would say, all right, you're gone. You're not going to listen. Get the fuck out of here. You don't care about your team. Get out of here. But that's not what Phil Jackson did, right? Phil Jackson actually bargained with Dennis Rodman. And in multiple instances where this type of behavior would be deemed egregious by any logical human being, he was permitted to appear on WWE, to have a weekend bender in Vegas to do things that should all be completely counterproductive to a high level of performance on the basketball court. But in turn, ended up being the best thing for him and for the Chicago Bulls because he was able to play at his best after getting whatever shit he had to get out of him. So I bring up these two archetypes to suggest that there is not one type of coach that's going to be successful with an athlete. And that's why you need to learn your athlete. Because the most important thing to learn about your athlete is a lesson you learn about yourself, namely, what type of coach does my athlete need, right? If you're coaching me, for example, there are going to be times where I'm neurotic, and you're going to have to reel me back in and just tell me to shut up and follow the plan. And Steve has done a fantastic job of that. But at the same time, I just care about progressing. I just want to win. I just want to be the best. And you're going to be very authoritative if you want to get that out of me, because that was my experience growing up. I've always been very intrinsically motivated. I've always had very traditionally masculine coaches. And my upbringing was in arguably the most selfless sport, which is baseball, right? Because no one individual really has that high of an impact on the trajectory of a game or a season. It really does require a team. But there are other athletes who maybe come from individual sports. There may be athletes whose temperament does not necessarily align with that. Um, you know, namely some of the differences between genders, for example, is that female athletes will tend to respond better to this more democratic style of coaching, whereas male athletes on average will respond better to a more authoritative style of coaching. And within genders, right, within the same gender, there's always going to be variability. I've had male athletes who are very sensitive. I've had female athletes who are like, tell me, you know, you say jump, I'll ask you how high. There's always different archetypes. There's always different predispositions. But the point is to learn your athlete well enough such that you know what they'll respond best to because their own intrinsic motivation will carry them a good bit of the way. But I think everybody needs directionality and you won't know where to, your motivation should take you if you don't have directionality. And that's where you come in, the coach. And in addition to that, there are going to be times where motivation wavers. And they have to feel like they have support, that they have an obligation to something maybe bigger than themselves. I, I think that you fuel both a selfless and selfish lifter by being the coach that they need. Because if you are the coach that they need, you fuel the ego by being the best source of motivation that they can have, meaning that you know the most efficient way to get 
to them. Because some lifters need to be told to get their head out of their ass. Some lifters need reassurance. So your job is to figure out how do I reach this lifter, right? Because when the ego takes a hit, part of your job is to bring it back up, right? Bring it back up at least to a level that is going to facilitate uh, positive training outcomes, not pushing it past that point, right? But then also fueling the, the selfless part of the athlete is that if an athlete feels like they have an obligation to you, right? They feel like, wow, this person really cares about me or is invested in me. There's this selfless component to the way that they carry themselves through their training, right? And I think that this is so important, not just in lifting, but in life and all the relationships that you have is that when both parties of a relationship are selfless, that is when you get the best possible outcome, right? You're going to get the best possible outcome when you care for this lifter about giving them the best possible meet performance, your athlete is going to perform his best, not just because he cares about performing his best, but because he cares about making you proud, because he cares about doing everything right, because he cares equally and in response to how much you care. And this goes for relationships, right? And this is kind of the larger theme of the talk. It's like, I hate, detest how much as a collective in this individualist society, we've begun to view relationships in such a selfish way, in that there's no commitment, in that we are constantly looking to see whether or not someone provides value to us, and whether or not our value is being reciprocated, right? Meaning that, oh, I'm putting in this much, and I'm receiving less, therefore, I should feel bitter or resentful toward this person, and I should no longer want to be part of this in engagement in this contract or that people feel like because there's this, you know, involuntary affection that fades that the relationship should no longer continue, right? It's commitment, 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 commitment. And the same needs to be pursued and upheld in the relationships with your lifters. And for myself, this was a difficult one because I know my own predisposition, my own natural temperament, which is being very receptive to the authoritative coaching style, being very dry, being very um, formulaic, objective, saying, well, if you're not willing to put in this, then you're not going to get this. And that's too bad because that's the way I carry myself. And that's the way my coaches spoke to us as members of a team, right? We're, remember, we're going back to the idea of a collective and how people uh, inevitably are more selfless and, and put their own feelings aside, right? So that was my upbringing. That was my environment for the world of sports. So when I began coaching, and especially when I began coaching female lifters, this was one of the biggest obstacles I had to overcome because you realize that not everybody is going to respond well to that. I think that you'd be foolish to say that an athlete does not want to get better because they are not doing X, Y, or Z. There's always going to be the part of me that is going to not believe that. There's always going to be the part of me that says, well, if you want it badly enough, you're going to do all of these things. And unfortunately, the world will keep on moving where if you don't have the self-awareness or the, the, um, the consciousness to kind of wake up and pull yourself out of the rut that you're in, right? If you can't ever expose yourself to that being a deficit, either unilaterally or with the help of others, the world will keep on moving and you'll never accomplish what it is that you want. It's just how it goes. However, I think that it is foolish to say that because people falter, because people do not do the things that are essentially the, the ground rules for getting from point A to point B as they want or desire, to say that they don't want it is erroneous. I think there are a lot of people who haven't had the environment growing up. They haven't had the experience, the mentors. They don't even know what it would look like to do these things. And if you're coming at a lifter with your authoritative, formulaic, speech, it's going to fall on deaf ears, right? You're not going to get through to them. 
And you can say what you want about the lifter for not being able to accomplish what they set out to accomplish, but ultimately it falls on you. And the reason I say it falls on you is because that lifter can go to another coach who knows how to communicate that stuff and the lifter will get it done, right? So the lifter was not the limiting factor. You were. And that was the issue that I had to solve because when I first started coaching, sure, there were plenty of lifters who were very motivated and they were willing to do X, Y, and Z like a robot, but there are others that aren't. And with a growing female roster, I definitely found out that a lot of them weren't. And when you first start off as a coach, especially as a male coach, it's unlikely that you're going to attract female clients because I think female lifters kind of have a a less um, objective outlook toward why they would hire a coach, right? Like it's, it's just a, a difference in predisposition where male lifters will just say, okay, like who's had the results and that's who they'll go to, right? But there's kind of this secondary level of comfort or feeling of, of compatibility or, you know, um, similarity. Maybe they know someone who works with this person. They need confirmation outside of just the objective numbers to go work with a coach. And that's fine. I, I think that that's a very justifiable difference, assuming that you're still weighing the more quantitative and objective factors. But the fact is, as a coach, that's something you run into, where in the beginning, I really had no female clients outside of Daniela. And now I'm at the point where my roster is between 35 and 40% female. And I think I've done an exceptional job with my female athletes only because, not because I got better at programming, only because I took the time to introspect and say, how can I communicate this same message and get the desired outcome in a way that reaches and speaks to this new archetype that I've never been exposed to in my entire life? And it's only through that that you really begin to see the success that you can have. As a coach, you are going to work with so many different types of lifters, which means that you can't be the same type of coach. You cannot be one type of coach. You have to be able to wear different hats. And as you work with a singular lifter throughout the entire course of a training career, their trajectory will change, their velocity will change, meaning how quickly they're moving in one direction. Their momentum will change. They will change. Like it is, it can be a completely dynamic and transformative experience in terms of where their lifting career goes, in terms of how they view lifting. So that demands change from you as well in how you approach certain situations. So bringing it back to the original question, of the day, which was, you know, how do I get better at coaching? I, I think the question that you have to ask yourself as part of this very vague and loaded, how do I get better at coaching question is how do I get better at navigating my relationships with people? This in my mind is a non-negotiable. And I think that for many people, this is what keeps them with the same coach because there are going to be coaches who come along, right? The, the, the turnover rate of coaches is pretty quick, I would say. You know, there's obviously coaches like myself and, and Joey uh, who have been around for a long time. RTS, TSA, TSG, right? But there are coaches I remember when I got into the sport at 2015 who were very passionate, very successful, had big rosters, and now they don't. And that could be a result of their own degradation and coaching quality, but that can also be a result of them just moving on to different things in life, which is totally fine. Because you see this turnover of coaches, there are going to be better coaches that come along. They're going to be essentially the point that I'm driving at is that your athlete might see the results of another coach. They might see athletes under other coaches getting, you know, exceptional results, or maybe, you know, like, let's look at, at Marcellus, the Swole Fesser, right? It's like in the past couple of years, 
he's built a super soldier roster of lifters, you know, Ashton, Bob, Petrie, um, you know, Michael C, Jamar Royster, like the list goes on, right? And Marcellus, phenomenal, phenomenal, amazing, amazing coach. And it sucks that I even have to use you as the example because you do the interpersonal stuff so well. But let's say you saw a coach who had this exceptional roster. So you're an athlete and you're noticing that this coach is just creating medalists and record holders. And if all you have to hold on to your coach is your rate of progress, then what would keep you? What would not, why would you not explore working with another coach, right? It could be the case that you might do better under this hypothetical coach, right? It very well could be the case. And I urge people to always make the decisions that are best for them. But at the same time, if you have faith in your coach, if you have a relationship that makes you feel that what you are doing and the effort that your coach puts forward is in your best interest and he knows you better than any other coach could know you, then you'll believe that you are in the best hands. And that is the most important thing for being able to continue to work with a lifter. And like I was saying before, I think it just makes you a better coach for this lifter. I think that when you look at things only from an egotistical level of how can I be the best coach that I can be from a programming standpoint and a results standpoint to fuel your own feeling of uh, success and satisfaction and being a good programmer, um, that ego-driven outlook has its limitations. And I think that the dispassionate side of it also has its limitations in truly being able to get the best from you for your lifter. Um, I've felt, and I, and I've, and I said earlier, you have to choose when you have lifters, you have to commit to those who you maybe at first don't have strong relationships with. You have to commit because you'll find yourself in the relationships with athletes with whom you have this, you know, amazing chemistry and amazing relationship, you'll involuntarily just want their success at this raw emotional level. And if you're getting that to such a high degree compared to other lifters, you are now depriving your other lifters of the same quality product and the same quality experience and the same quality relationship. I hate to use the word product even because I want to get rid of this uh, commodifying of this relationship. You're, you're depriving your other lifter of the same quality relationship and experience that the one with whom you have a good relationship or, or feelings toward uh, gets. So my point, and I think that I've kind of, at this point, maybe beat it to death, is that where you have to look is toward your relationships to really, really become the best coach that you can be. And, you know, this is something that might require you to look at how you treat your siblings, look at how you treat your parents, look at how you treat your girlfriend, boyfriend, you know, ask yourself, am I looking for something in return whenever I do something for my girlfriend? Do I ever, um, you know, buy a gift and expect that I'm going to receive one of equal perceived value. And if I don't, they've somehow done a worse job than me. Or do I, you know, look to well, the one time that I let my brother borrow the car, or borrow the Xbox, that if he doesn't reciprocate a favor when I need it, that I am somehow a better sibling than this person. Do I close myself off from relationships with others? Do I find myself having difficulty in giving or receiving love? I think all of these things are much more similar to the world of coaching than you might think. Because if you are not aware of how selfish you are or how 
graceless you are or how impatient you are in the relationships that are closest to you and should be of most vital emotional importance, then you won't bat an eye when you don't do those things for a coach-client relationship, which is separated a bit more distantly. This is an area of, of, of focus for myself that I've really put a ton of time into, especially in the past year. And I just invite everyone listening to do the same. And this is not just a conversation for the coaches, right? And that's kind of what I aim to get out of every podcast, every talk that I do, every Q&A that I do is like, there's always something to learn from everybody. And that there's always a broader lesson to learn from a specific one, right? So this talk was intended for the coaches. How do I become the best possible coach? Right. And we could harp over the different styles of periodization and tapering and when to up frequency, when to lower frequency. But I think that the big rock really is being able to get buy-in from an athlete and being able to believe in and support and want to love your athlete. And that extends to life outside of your coach client relationship. Right. I think that you are at a supreme loss and the people in your life that you care about are at a supreme loss if you have not at least looked within about these topics and asked yourself, am I freely giving love? Am I committing to the promises that I've made? Am I receiving people's love in the way that they give it? Am I supporting people in a way that is compatible with how they want to receive support? Am I confirming people's beliefs in themselves? Am I reassuring them when they have doubts? All of these skills enhance and enrich your personal relationships. And in my firmly held belief are a massive separator between programmers and coaches. And ultimately, if you don't have these things figured out, I think that you are incomplete as a coach. That is a belief that you won't be able to challenge me on because every relationship that you have with a person needs to be executed in the most authentic way and selfless way and most graceful way and most patient way possible. Whew. All right. I think that is where I'm going to end this episode. This is episode 13 of the High Bar Podcast. We'll be back to the more nitty gritty stuff in the next one when I hop back on here with Chance. But I want to inject some of these more philosophical or deep or maybe spiritually rooted conversations just because I think that they are conversations not a lot of people have. And for those who don't have them, they don't get this from anywhere. And it's, it's unfortunate to have it that way. And I've been lucky enough not to have it that way. So I want to make sure that people get that in some capacity. So thank you guys so much for listening. This has been episode 13 of the High Bar Podcast with Sean Noriega. Remember, there are no bad days. And I'll see you guys in the next one. Take care.